Hey, everybody. A quick note before the show. I have just finished reading, I mean, literally about an hour ago, I have just finished reading a new novel by former Elder Sign guest host, Sun Yi Dean, and I really love this book, and I think that you will too, so I want to tell you a little bit about it. The book is called The Book Eaters, and, uh, well, is exactly what it says on the box there. It is about people who eat books. The story is set in the real world, our world, but the speculative element is that there is a hidden society, a secret society of people who look like humans, but aren't. And the fact that they consume books instead of pizza is really just one part of what makes them different from the rest of us. And getting a chance to explore this really evocative, really imaginative world that Dean has constructed, this was a huge part of the fun for me. Thematically, the book is an awesome exploration of the fairy tales that we give to children, and then also the fantasy literature that has grown out of that fairy tale tradition. And let me read a, a few lines to you, just to give you a taste, a little tease. They were princesses, of a kind, and this was how princesses lived. Safe in towers, married to men who competed for them, one way or another. Even in the happiest fairy tales, princesses did not usually have much choice. They were prizes to be won or given away, and there was no other context in which she could understand life. And if that passage grips you the way that it gripped me, I hope you'll do yourself a favor and pick up a copy of The Book Eaters by Sonia Dean. To make that easy for you, I have put a link in the show notes, but of course, you'll also be able to find this book at your local shop. Again, that is The Book Eaters by Sonia Dean. Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. In this episode, we'll be discussing Sandman number 24, Season of Mists, Chapter 3. Uh, cover date of this issue was March 1991. Neil Gaiman, of course, is the writer. Kelly Jones returning as the penciler. P. Craig Russell as inker. Daniel Vazo as colorist. Todd Klein as letterer. Tom Payer as assistant editor. And, of course, Karen Berger as editor. So we started out Season of Mists with a genuine prologue, right? An issue that is called prologue. And then we had another issue that felt like a prologue to me. And I, when I said so on the air, you told me, Brent, no, no, this was an extra issue that uh, Neil Gaiman was was forced to write uh, because of stuff going on in DC Comics. And so now here in chapter three, to me, this now feels like we're really getting into the the story right we're we're actually getting into I mean, the story's not right but we're getting into you know the plot that we've had a lot of setup for a story that thus far hasn't really been all that much about dream but now we are going to get dream at the center of 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 something here in fact maybe let's just move right into it because we we've been spending a lot of time in hell especially you know these last two issues chapter 3 though actually opens up in still another supernatural place and in this case it is Asgard, which is the home of the gods in ancient Norse religion. And we open with uh, a, an image of 
Odin, the the chief of those Norse gods, sitting on his throne and waiting for his two ravens, thought and memory, to return to him. And then the location shifts to a cavern beneath the world where the trickster god Loki is imprisoned. He's bound in the entrails of his own son. Uh, A snake is dripping venom on him. This is a a type of, of torture. And what Loki has done to merit this torture, this punishment, that is not specified here, though it's clear that Odin has organized this, uh, or at least approved of it in some way. But Odin is here now in this cavern beneath the world, and he's he's going to temporarily release Loki because it turns out that he needs Loki's help. And what he needs Loki's help with is acquiring the key to hell from Dream, which is how Odin plans to save the gods from Ragnarok because the prophecy about Ragnarok says it's going to destroy Asgard. And well, Asgard is where the gods live, but hey, If they don't have to live in Asgard because they've got some new real estate, then it won't matter if Asgard is destroyed. So this is his plan here. And I have to say, you know, it seems like a solid plan to me, but Loki is always dangerous. And so Odin also has to get the storm god Thor to help him out. And Thor's job mostly is going to be keep an eye on Loki. So that's the opening here, right? This is this is where we are. This introduces the idea that you know people are interested in taking possession of hell now that Lucifer has locked it up and abandoned it, and that is what the plot of Season of Mist is going to be. So we'll be taking that up in pages and pages to come. But first, Brent, I think we really need to pause here to talk about this spectacularly massive bit of world building that this issue just coldly opens with. We've been dealing with a world in which we know that there is some literal truth to the supernatural stories of the three Abrahamic religions and then also ancient Greek religion. But now we know that this is also the case with ancient Norse religion. And this is a really, really big deal. But I think it's also something that you, know, you and I, Brent, but also I think most readers, maybe not necessarily just of the Sandman, but people who have read Neil Gaiman before, this is something I think that we come to take for granted. But it's a pretty big deal. So I want to make sure that we pause here and take stock of this. Yeah. And we've also seen, we had an issue where, you know, there was a discussion of Egyptian deities being real. We had Ra, right? But we never actually really got to see Ra. You know, the main character of that issue does see something, but we see her seeing him. We don't see what it looks like. It's not a kind of anthropomorphic personification the way we do here, where literally we open with what is going on with Odin and then what is going on with Loki. Um, and, you know, it's it's quite a few uh, pages before we get any characters that we've seen up to this point in Salmon Continuity. So kind of nesting in all these additional mythologies um, is kind of a fun bit that you're right. We When it comes to a lot of Neil Gaiman's work, particularly American Gods, but a lot of other stuff, we kind of take for granted the idea that all these mythological figures can be interacting as if you're just pulling them from, you know, the advanced Dungeons and Dragons, Fiend Folio, or Legends and Lore kind of deities and demigods books. Right, right. Yeah, I forgot. Of course. Yeah, we've also had e- Egyptian, ancient Egyptian religion here too in in Facade when we get Ra. I forgot about that. So I'm glad you brought that up because uh, it's going to it's gonna matter again <laughs> when we get a little bit further into this issue. But we, we have also before had the invocation of or, or, or the use of the name Norn uh, to refer to the three women. And that is something that's out of of ancient Norse religion as well. But that was part of a list where we're getting told these figures, these these 
three women or, or women who are three, but also one are syncretic. They have many names depending on what system you're in, what which religious system you're in. And we get something kind of like that actually when Ra is introduced in Facade. But here it's quite clear that Odin and Loki and Thor are distinct personages. No, they're not uh, different aspects of uh, gods that also exist in, in other cultures, right? It's not that you know Thor is one type of storm god, but there are other storm gods too, and they're all kind of just aspects of the same thing. Here they clearly are distinct, fully functioning personalities who exist all the time. Yeah, and that have their own kind of domains that they have responsibility for, and you know the instigation for us meeting all these characters there is interest when there is you know real estate becomes available um there is a competition to try to get it right um so we have thunder gods who have differing interests not just bringing the thunder though bringing the thunder is that's everybody's interest i think yeah <laughs> Well, as we've said here, Brett, there there are others who are also going to be interested in purchasing the deed to hell from Dream, you know, purchasing uh, sort of loosely defined there. We are going to meet them. Uh, in fact, we're going to do a bit of uh, getting the band together sort of thing here later in this issue. But let's talk about Dream's return to the dreaming first. When he gets home from hell, he is not in a good mood. He does not want to talk to Kane, doesn't want to talk to Lucian or Matthew. Instead, he goes directly to his room where he punches a mirror. And then he summons Death to ask her what he should do with hell. And Death suggests, yeah, you know, you could open a ski resort or a theme park of some sort, but really, it doesn't matter. Also, she doesn't have time for this because, uh, Hell's been emptied, and so the dead are coming back because uh, hell's been emptied, right? There's nowhere for them to be. That is a thread that we're going to tug on in the next issue. But right now, the focus is on Dream. And what strikes me here, Brent, is that Dream has cause to be upset, right? He, he went to hell to free Nada, but she wasn't there. He doesn't know where she is now. And so Dream has failed in his quest but that's not actually what he's upset about in this moment. And when he has death in his home, ready to help him, he doesn't ask her to help him find the soul of the dead person he was trying to help. You know, the soul that presumably is at least in some way in death's domain, and she would be someone who could help him with that. He doesn't ask her for that help. That's not what he's asking her for. It's it's rather self-involved, right? Even after he has decided not to be self-involved, like that was the plot of the prologue. That's how this whole story has been kicked off as him deciding not to be quite so self-involved. But here he is just slipping right back into that habit. Yeah. And he's upset that he has some additional responsibility on him. Um, he's upset that he has this key and he doesn't know what to do with it. And his sister doesn't really have time for that because just like do whatever you want with it. I got other things I got to do. And part of this, uh, I think having death come and have this interaction is just to also present the idea that there are stakes going on in our world separate from what we're seeing in the dreaming, that there are consequences to his inaction um, and to the fact that hell is locked. And Leslie Klinger in The Annotated Sandman um, mentions that in an, an earlier version of the script, instead of starting with Odin, Dream comes back to the dreaming in the first 
page or two, and it has a conversation with the Phantom Stranger, who's a character from DC Comics, and that that's basically exposition about, you know, hey, things are uh, real bad and the death or dead are coming back and you probably need to do something about this. And it just didn't work. It was just too much exposition. And um, as Leslie Klinger points out from a conversation he had with Neil Gaiman, uh, Neil thought that the problem is that the character Phantom Stranger and the character of Dream kind of both have similar speech patterns and affectations. So it just sounded like (laughs) one character talking to themselves in some ways. They look different. So the art would differentiate it. But otherwise, it just wasn't that interesting. So instead, scrap that. But some of that dialogue then got put in Death's Mouth for the, hey, things are going on and things are happening, which I think is important. And I think that, you know, the other nice thing we get in this scene of – dream talking to his sister is, as you said, his he's frustrated, but it's interesting to see what he is frustrated about because what he's frustrated about is not, I wanted to go, you know, rescue Nada for the hell that I literally imprisoned her in. Instead, it's, I have this key and I don't know what to do with it. And it's just like, okay, you're easily distracted, which <laughs> which I in some ways does line up with a lot of mythological stories because everyone gets easily distracted all the time in mythology, right? Oh, absolutely. Though usually it's distracted by a desire to have sex with somebody that you aren't allowed to actually have sex with or something like that. I think there, you know, thinking about this from a storytelling perspective, I think that there was a, a better way to do this conversation, to, to have Dream be upset, than also to give this exposition to us, the, the readers. And that would be to actually have Dream summon Death in order to ask for help locating Nada, for Death to say, hey, look, yeah, sure, I can do that, but like, there's a lot of dead people that I'm having to deal with right now. I'm super, super busy, so that's going to take a while. In the meantime, um, if you could get hell opened back up so we have some place to send these people back to, that would be great. So there's urgency for you to figure out what's going on, right? Where we could see that Dream actually is still concerned with his his primary mission, which is free Nada, which, you know, now has a little bit of a bump in the, the road here. That's still what he's really focused on. But now it turns out that the way for him to accomplish that is actually to deal with the key situation first while death is helping him out with the other thing. I, I think that's the way that I would have done this. And I think it's, it's really kind of become my headcanon for this scene in some way. Yeah, no, I think that that would be convenient. Although I wonder if we're never really showing the power that death has. And it's one of those things where if he asked her, would she just instantly know the answer to that? Um because we're not showing the limits of death the way we are the limits of dream. That's absolutely right. And this would actually have been a good time for us to get to learn a little bit about that. I, because I certainly, I'm really, really interested in that. I have lots of metaphysical questions about what does happen when souls are kicked out of hell and hell is locked up. We won't address those in this issue because we need to see a little bit more about the story, I think, first, by which I mean next issue when we're back on Earth and see some dead people returned. But uh, lots of questions about how all of that actually works. Like, What's the deal with souls? What's the deal with the afterlife? Yeah, who is death? What is her domain? Like, what are her actual responsibilities and what are her actual powers as well? Those would be fun things to speculate about uh, next issue and issues to come. One fun thing to speculate about that 
apparently there is no answer about is uh, when Dream returns to the Dreaming and we get this uh, wonderful splash page on page six where he is walking through the entrance and th- there's Lucian and there's Kane and there's Matthew. Uh, there's a shadowy presence behind him. And um, apparently many readers wrote in and said, who is that person in the doorway behind Dream? And the only answer is uh, a grotesque thingy. And uh, there is a version of the script for this um, issue that uh, a bootleg version that is available uh, online that you can easily find. Um, And that is how it is described in uh, Neil Gaiman's notes to – to the artists, the editors for this issue is that behind him, there's a grotesque thingy. So that's just supposed to be some nightmare creature that dream happens to walk past as he's walking into the throne room. But we could all speculate then what is that grotesque thingy? And is it something that has existed for a while and was hanging out in the castle when, and dream walks past it? Or is it something that like dream creates right then as just kind of the nightmare thing over his shoulder? It's it. I'm not sure. You had any thoughts when you saw that, Glenn, as to what that might be? It looks super cool. I mean, it's a it's anthropomorphic, right? It's a type of person, I, I, I guess, right? And it looks to me like a sort of something out of maybe a kind of a, a cult detective series, right? It's some kind of supernatural person. Uh, like, I don't know, could kind of, it, it actually looks like it could even be a, a fire elemental or something like that. But it's also looks like it might be wearing a bit of a trench coat. It's got this kind of expression on its face that suggests hard boiled, right? So to me, this is something that, um, Oh, uh, I don't know. Maybe this maybe this actually is something that happens in uh, uh, Raymond Chandler nightmare to to borrow borrow a book from Lucian's library. Yeah, and at first I thought of it, um, and I think probably I still mostly think of it as something wearing a trench coat, and that's just a kind of a a collar that's flaring up. But then I looking at it now, I'm just like, is that part of its jawline? Maybe, and like it's just got a really big underbite. Um, that's sticking out. And I, I don't know. Uh, but either way, I do like the kind of floppy uh, bit of its hair and kind of the great Halloween look to its eyes. Yeah, actually, I guess this even could also just be straight out of the TV show Angel as well. <laughs> Maybe it's Angel. Angel was hanging out in the dreaming. He was there for something. Dream had no time for him, though. This is actually what Angel looks like when Spike is dreaming, I think, right? Because Spike is kind of obsessed with the poofiness of of Angel's hair. (laughs) All right. Well, before we digress into uh, Buffyverse fandom too much, which is also very easy for us to do, let's go meet the other supernatural powers who are going to be coming to the dreaming to bargain for possession of hell. We've already met the Norse gods, but next we meet the forces of order and chaos. And to be clear, these are not a team. That's not an ampersand, uh, though we do meet them on the same page. And it's a really fun juxtaposition. I love this whole idea, Brent. Yeah, the, the gods of order and chaos, I think, are fun. Leslie Clear notes that in the script, um, Neil Gaiman had some very specific thoughts on them. Um, so I'll share some of that here. 
Neil writes, okay, now what I want to do here is bring in chaos and order. Frankly, not a concept I have much time for in the DC universe. It seems to be another way of talking vaguely about vaguely magic-ish gods of whom the Lords of Order are splodgy shapes that sort of glow, not very orderly, and the Lords of Chaos are disembodied smiles, not particularly chaotic, unless we're talking Hawk and Dove type titles, in which case Lords of Chaos and Order are good or bad, magic gods, order being a bit nicer than Chaos, straight out of Dungeons and Dragons. Up until now, I've tended to simply avoid them and slag them off in the books of magic. Okay, so this is something I just did not realize at all, Brent, is that what I'm inferring is that, hey, these exist already in DC Comics. So now you have to tell me about that. Yep. So uh, the Lords of Order uh, first appeared in Dr. Fate number uh, Volume 1, Number 1 from July 1987. This is Leslie Klinger nicely noting this for us. And in that, it's mentioned that uh, Naboo, uh, Dr. Fate over time has either been the actual incarnation of a Lord of Order or he has been a Lord of Order trapped in the helmet that Dr. Fate wears. And then the Lords of Chaos are then the, you know, the, the opposed group. Um, and they first appeared, um, in Justice League America, volume one, number 32, and Justice League Europe, volume one, number eight, which both came out in November of 1989 as opponents of the Lord of Order. Um, and in the past, they are, as Neil describes them, kind of smiley faces in a void for chaos and splodgy, round looking kind of things hanging in the void in terms of order. It's thought, but not explicitly determined. And High Bender discusses this as Leslie Klinger does. And Neil also, you know, thinks this is probably the case that a lot of this probably goes back to writers of those comics thinking about more of Michael Moorcox um, in his Elric series, where he kind of posits the order versus chaos. And a lot of people think that that's where Dave Arneson and Guy, Guy, Gary Gygax got it for Dungeons and Dragons, where, um, you know, the alignment chart used to just be uh, law, chaos, and then the neutral between. And it wasn't until later that you layered the good and evil on that too. And it's important to note that the law and order are not necessarily good or evil. You can certainly be very lawful um, and, you know, in a very authoritarian way, fascist way, even where um, that you are very evil <laughs> um, and chaos, you know, Robin Hood generates a lot of chaos, but arguably does a lot of good in the process, right? Right. Yeah. The 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 classic uh, nine nine slot grid or nine square grid that we all use to uh, talk about everything, which is actually a fun thing that we could do with the Sandman at some point too to plot people uh, plot character alignments. Yeah, that's that's a later adjustment of that original concept that one hundred percent is straight out of Michael Moorcock. And of course, Neil Gaiman knows that. Neil Gaiman's a huge Michael Moorcock fan. Has a at least one story that is uh, about Michael Moorcock or, or taking some cues from Michael Moorcock. I'll say, but I'm really interested in order and chaos because I it's not like I've never read some DC comics, though listeners to this podcast might might think that that's true. I've read a ton of Batman. I've read a ton of Superman and some Justice League and so on, but I don't think I've ever encountered them before. So where do they exist? Like where are stories about them and 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 where, you know, is there something we could go read to, you know, see order and or chaos kind of front and center in some story arc in some superhero story? Yeah. So generally, um, as I mentioned, Dr. Fate is a Lord of Order or in the helmet of the Lord of Order, who then becomes Dr. Fate. So we've, you know, and, the, and Dr. Fate is kind of one of those mystical 
figures in you know DC Comics who sometimes is part of the Justice League. So in the Justice League, then continuity, whether Justice League America, Justice League Europe, Justice League International, sometimes there's Lords of Chaos or Order, usually more often Chaos, that are the instigators for there being a problem that basically instead of having a concept that there is, you know, an evil thing that is let loose by, well, you know, say Lucifer or something, right? Instead, because as Lucifer said in Sandman, you know, he's not forcing anyone to do anything, but the chaos as like, let's imbue some individual or have something spill out that causes some kind of chaos that then the superheroes have to put on their capes and go fight. But it tends to be more with the magically inclined characters, right? So Dr. Fate, uh, Zatanna, and sometimes the better writers make a good show of the fact that the characters who, you know, maybe wearing the Dr. Fate helm and have to wrestle with the fact that order again, not necessarily good. <laughs> so the Lords of Order and Chaos are kind of their own pantheon just within DC Comics. Um, but again, in- inspired by Michael Moorcock, uh, but kind of nebulous things. Um, and yeah, it's, it's really great how Neil views how they can be presented and then how Kelly Jones, um, and the other artists kind of present the actual depiction on this wonderful kind of two page bit. So I, yeah, I really like the, the fact that we've got order and chaos. And if you read it, they're literally having the exact same internal conversations. It's just that they're having them in a very kind of ordered way on the one hand and on the other way, just kind of a chaotic and it's sometimes like misspelled or kind of loopy and just, you know, fun with word balloons. And, and I, I really like the way this page works. And you mentioned that later on in this issue, Brent, we actually get these characters introduced where we don't really, we don't actually see them as any kind of physical representation uh, when they're first introduced here. But later on, we do see that. And so we get uh, Shivering Jemmy, who's representing Chaos. She's a, a, a princess of Chaos and she's from the Shallow Brigade. She appears to be a little kid who's dressed up as a clown and she's got a balloon, though she's also wearing like a, a sackcloth. But then we see Order actually is just a cardboard box. Uh, this is the uh, uh, Lord Kilderkin, a manifestation of order here incarnated for us in the form of this cardboard box, but then is being carried around by a human servant. And this also is just fantastic. Yeah, these are both fantastic um, ideas. And this is all, this is not from DC Continuity at all. This is Neil Gaiman deciding that this is how he wants to go about presenting kind of the manifestations of these two. Um, in Highbender's Sandman Companion, there's an interview with Neil in which he talks about, um, quote, it tickled me to represent order as a cardboard box. And since I was the father of a six-year-old at the time, my daughter Holly, it didn't seem a stretch to incarnate chaos as a small girl. Holly had just had her birthday for which she put on clown face and wore oversized clothing and wandered around with balloons. And I thought, there we go. That's what Shivering Jemmy will look like. Okay, wow. Because I would have had this pegged as being from it from Stephen King's It, which you know was certainly a, a best-selling novel, but then also in 1990 was a you know two-part miniseries that uh, I remember keeping me up at night, giving me lots of nightmares. Even though I was not actually watching it, it was just sort of uh, on in the background in an, in another room. That while my parents were watching it, and I ostensibly was playing with Legos. Uh, maybe it's just in our culture, or maybe it's just in our culture in general. Since that moment, we cannot see a clown and not think of Pennywise. 
Pennywise. Yeah, and I think I had assumed that Pennywise was the inspiration as well, and and you know perhaps it did play a little bit of a you know background part, but I think yeah, the idea of a, a six year old girl, or in the script, it's noted that um, she should look like a girl of about four who's either wearing oversized dress of some kind, or maybe even a pillowcase with holes cut in it. Which I love that image that it's just a, a four year old wearing a pillowcase that they've put holes in and it's dragging on the ground and stuff and uh but uh shivering jemmy and uh neil mentioned in highbender's uh, sandman companion and also it's mentioned in leslie Klinger's annotate sandman shivering jemmy um is an old english uh slang word there's an old english dictionary which defines it essentially as someone who it's type of beggar who would either be partially if not fully undressed and would kind of shiver at you in the hopes that you would give them you know, alms. Uh, I will mention with uh, the Lord of Order, we have Lord Kilderkin, which again, Neil Gaiman just liked the idea of a cardboard box. And it's impossible now in our modern day for, for good or perhaps for ill for me not to imagine that somewhere maybe there's an Amazon label on it. Although, you know, it is a Lord of Order. So it is, if it is on it, it's perfectly placed. But uh, Neil um, mentions that he has a genie carrying it just because he at some point wanted to have a genie in Sandman. And so that's the reason why there's a genie who's carrying it versus anything else. And a Kilderkin is a unit of measurement. Uh, the name Kilderkin um, is presented as a joke. There are a number of uh, entities that are kind of joke names in here. And it's an obsolete word of measure of beer or ale, half a barrel, according to Leslie Klinger. It's hard to take it seriously, though, when the forces of order have sent Lord Half Barrel. I mean, send us Lord Full Barrel <laughs> if you really, if you really want hell. I think it's, uh, I think there's, it's telling. It's telling about how how much they actually want to take possession of hell. That's a good point, and I think we'll have to talk about that uh, in later issues when we find out how things progress as to how serious anyone particularly was regarding this. Right. Yeah. So those are the forces of order and chaos, but we're not done meeting people yet. There are are quite a few people who are going to be showing up looking to get their hands on this key. And next up, we get a two-page spread about the angels of heaven, uh, or more specifically, the angels of the Silver City, which you told us about last time, Brent. And we see two angels here who are being sent to the Dreaming to negotiate for hell. And these are Duma, who is the angel of silence, and Remiel, who is set over those who rise. And, well, maybe we should back up a little bit even here, Brenton, and just talk about angels more generally, because I don't think that we have ever done that. And maybe the first thing to say is that just, you know, the word angel, although it conjures up some real specific images for us, it it is a word that simply means messenger. And it is actually a word that could actually be applied to a person and, and is applied to people in Abrahamic scripture, just to say so-and-so was you know, acting as a courier or something like that, though that's fairly early on in in scripture. And by the uh, the time that we're getting sort of the later bits of Jewish scripture and Christian scripture, uh, the word is the word is really relegated to these supernatural messengers from God, and that's really then what we mean by the word angel is messengers of God. And yeah, as I said, this is common to uh, all Abrahamic religions. And they first appear in some of the earliest scripture that we get there in Genesis chapter 18. This is a really famous episode that's now called The Hospitality of Abraham. And here they are, you know, three people who are 
just kind of wandering by where Abraham has his settlement. They're they're unnamed, but Abraham invites them over for dinner, essentially. But then as Jewish scripture develops, angels become increasingly important, and they're really all over the Talmud, especially. And then they also are foundational to both Christianity and Islam, where the angel Gabriel plays an important role for both of those religions. There is, as you would expect, a ton of theological disagreement about what angels are, what angels are for, how many of them there there are, and so on, right? All of these types of questions. Uh, not, though, actually, how many can dance on the head of a pin, though that's something that has entered our, our pop culture. But essentially, uh, what it all amounts to is that they are you know, supernatural or, or numinous helpers of God. And although in the first occurrence of them, they don't even have names. Eventually, a lot of angels are named in the Talmud and then in other parts of Abrahamic scripture as well. And they also then often get domains. In fact, we talked about how Samael, which is what in this storyline anyway, used to be the name of Lucifer when he dwelled in the Silver City. Uh, Samael was the angel of death. So, you know, that's an example of an angel having a domain. But we also get that here as well, right? We've got the angel of silence, and then we have the angel of those who rise. And I actually wonder what you think that last one means, Brent. I was unclear, <laughs> unsure about this, right? Who are those who rise? What What is the meaning of that, do you think? Do you have a note on that? I mean, I have a note on that because uh, Leslie Klinger had a note on that. So I don't recall what I was thinking prior to reading that, unfortunately. Uh, but Leslie Klinger speculates, um, or rather, he, he presents it as a given fact, uh, but, you know, speculation, uh, that God uh, – um, Ramiel or God raises up is said to be the angel of the resurrection of the dead, watching over those souls who rise to heaven. Um, and he notes as well that Duma associated with silence is also associated with the underworld and is said to guard the place of the dead who are of course silent. Um, and so I think that um, the who arise are those who at least from Leslie Klinger's viewpoint, I think this may sound right, is the idea of those who are looking over the resurrection. And we talked about the Silver City previously because we've heard mention of it. This is the first time, I think, in any DC Comics, um, which again, there haven't been a lot of mentions of the Silver City in DC continuity, but um, when it was done before, we have not seen a lot of mention of the Silver City, but this is the first time I believe we've ever seen the Silver City depicted, and it may be one of the few times that it's depicted. And I think that, you know, we are given a lot here in the text itself that the inhabitants of the city were created in the same breath as the city itself in the darkness before time, which we've talked about before, the idea that this is something that kind of predates a lot of things. It may even predate the endless. And it's just kind of this place that's kind of sitting outside of things and sitting outside the universe. In fact, when we see them, the, the two angels descend, they are you know clearly approaching the universe from something kind of outside of it. You know, what, what's outside of the expanded universe kind of area. Yeah, this was very, very cool to see depicted because it, it really does show us that the Silver City is outside of creation. But I also then wonder, you know, is the Silver City actually in Heaven, you know, is is we know there's a heaven because Lucifer tells us that there is a heaven, but then he's also, but then Lucifer also talks about the silver city. And seeing this depicted this way, I have the distinct impression that heaven and the silver city are not necessarily co-located. I don't know if you had any sense of that. 
Yeah, I I don't think they are, and it may even be last issue, and now I'm straining to remember that there's a reference of it being outside of, of heaven. I think that it's – I think it is something unto itself that exists outside of but maybe close to heaven, but I mean, geography gets weird. Um, we get a lot of it this issue though because we get the clearly the Silver City as being something that is outside of the universe, though clearly depicted as above, although in space, you know – Cardinal directions are not necessarily that useful, <laughs> but we, you know, we see the angels descending and that's the way it's referred to. Um, and, you know, when stepping back for a moment, when we saw Odin Loki, there's a great bit about how there's a cave under the world. And of course there is, and you know, there is, you know, deep down, um, which is great because now I'm envisioning a world in which there is a cave under the world. And yet there is a universe then that surrounds the world, but then outside of the universe is a city, which is clearly above it, but it's not wherever heaven is. And I have no clue where hell is in connection with any of this. <laughs> right. Because hell also a cave beneath the world, right? Like very right. literally. I mean, certainly in Dante, it, it is that. And then also you know, other other religious systems also have the underworld literally being an underworld. So yeah, I, I think the earth, uh, very much like the TARDIS, it perhaps is bigger on the inside. And I think this is just then when I default, because if this is what I'm familiar with, I think about D&D, you know, kind of views of the cosmology and the, uh, and the inner planar things where there just are separate planes that kind of exist next to, but not, you can't, you know, you need portals and stuff to actually transit between. It's not something where like, if you f go far enough west, then you'll fall off the uh, globe and you'll end up you know, where the Lords of Order are. It's just like, nope, uh, there's a separate kind of thing that then, you know, occasionally erupts order or chaos into the world or the prime material plane, if you will. Well, we should also talk about how these angels are depicted here on the page, because something that jumps out to me right away is that these angels have wings, but they're they're missing something, right? They They don't have halos. They don't. And I hadn't even... Fully thought about that till you just mentioned it, Glenn. One of them in the early pages, it looks like he might be have some kind of a wreath, but not a full halo over his head. Um, but the ones we see doing things just, yeah, they have just kind of sandy blonde or blonde hair. And that's, <laughs> that's what we get. And they have robes that are... Um, seem like if you didn't have wings, you would not be able to walk very much in them. <laughs> Yeah, I was really struck by this. I mean, yeah, we do get this white wreath. It's, I mean, it's just a laurel leaf wreath, but the the leaves are are white instead of green. But you know, the reason that that this jumped out to me is that I have in you know my previous life as a, a late antique historian had to think quite a bit about the depiction of angels, which is something that Judaism and Islam don't usually do, certainly not in pre-modernity because of in, in injunctions against it, but Christianity doesn't really have these injunctions, or at least big chunks of Christianity have not had these types of injunctions. And so we do get depictions of angels in visual art, beginning with early Christianity, start from the third century. These are um, like relief sculptures on tombs and so on. But these show up in the fourth century and then are important as well in the fifth century, which is really my area of expertise, where in general, Christian iconography has 
is becoming important as part of uh, political messaging as rulers now, Roman emperors, also uh, kings of the the states that uh, replaced the the Western Roman Empire and so on, are are wanting to broadcast their Christianity and are using a lot of different images uh, to do that. Halos are one of them. Crosses are are one. Uh, But also angels are one except also maybe they aren't. One of the things that happens here in art in late antiquity is that it's often really, really difficult to tell whether something is an angel or the goddess victory. They are depicted almost exactly the same. And so just to give a real specific example here for me is uh, early 6th century coins from the uh, Burgundian kingdom, the the King Gundabad, who's been sort of my my central research uh, interest back when I was uh, an actual researching historian. He has winged figures on coins that are issued after a victorious war. And the question is, are they angels or are is this a depiction of the goddess victory and we just we just don't know so this is where this is you know that what do angels look like how do we indicate that something is an angel or not has been important to uh, you know my professional life at at some point or another but even actually the earliest depiction of angels in Christian art don't have the the wings. Those don't actually show up until the fourth century where we're having this issue and figuring out, is does this mean victory or does this mean uh, an angel? But the halos are common starting in the, the fifth century. Also, the white robes show up at that point as well. And really, this is what angels look like then for the duration of the Middle Ages. They've got halos, they've got wings, and they've got white robes. Those are the attributes that let someone, anyone, looking at uh, a painting or uh, a, a mosaic or you know any other kind of visual art to let you know this figure you are looking at is an angel. And that's very, very convenient, <laughs> right? When you're trying to you know make sense of something, right? Because all of that type of art is trying to tell a story, often to people who can't read, often to, to people who aren't literate, right? And so that's very, very helpful to have that kind of iconography. Though then in the late Middle Ages, and especially in early modernity, a lot of painters actually began to drop the halos. They kept, you know, the the, the wings and the white robes, but dropped the halos. And I, I, it was interesting to me, that's essentially what we have here. We, you know, we've got all, we've got two of the three attributes, but we've dropped the halos. Um, and in the script, he provides quite a bit of some notes to um, to Kelly Jones. Um, he says, if you're feeling energetic, you could get some pre-Raphael books and look up some of the studies of Jane Morris, who is the model for many of the women and, um, and many of the men in Burne Jones, Rossetti et al.'s work. If you're feeling lazy, dig out your copy of Barry Smith's Red Nails and look at his drawings of Valeria. <laughs> but, um, he was swiped from Jane Morris in the pre-Raphs. Uh, but you might as well dig out the original. And then he goes on to say, all the angels have the same face. They look like they've been carved out of marble, perfect jawlines, perfect noses, perfect cheekbones, no eyes. Like statues, they have just white spaces in their eyes, no pupils, no irises. White robes, wonderful huge wings, all the angels we can see, and we can see hundreds of them, a couple large close to us, uh, more further away at different levels of spires, are just waiting completely motionless, completely still, contemplating perfection. Um and, you know, what actually translated from the script is we don't really get um, that many angels in panel. We get kind of some glowing bits and orbs by some of the spires that I think are supposed to be the angels. And we really only get 
couple on panel before we specifically call out Remiel and Duma and get them as other ones. So I think at most, we're only really getting four angels here. And the eyes don't have any pupils in them, and they are actually fairly creepy looking. And I think it is fair to say that they do look like the kind of reverse engineering of sculptures of angels that you you might find in a in a Victorian cemetery, which that owes a lot to the the pre-Raphaelite movement, actually. So um, I, I think it's fairly well executed. And I think it juxtaposes nicely with what we get on the following page, right? Because right. then we're going to cut from them to collection of various demons. Right. And before we take stock of what is going on here, uh, this is actually a good place, I think, for me to offer an apology and a correction from last issue, because yeah, we get the demons, used to be the inhabitants of hell. Now we see them and they are in limbo. And Last episode, I got unexpectedly obsessed with trying to locate Limbo, like like where is Limbo in this speculative world? And in doing that, I, I you know, heard myself doing this when I was editing that uh, that episode, Brad, I got myself a little tangled up about explaining exactly where Dante puts Limbo. And yeah, as I said, I heard this in the editing. So I've taken note of it. It is now on the list of things to do in the wrap-up episode, uh, especially since, hey, here it is again. And also, it is definitely not where Dante put it. So uh, just a little bit of correction there. Uh, you know, we record these episodes anywhere from six months to a year before they're uh, released. So this will not stave off, I think, <laughs> any angry emails of which I expect at least a few, but uh, they, are, they are noted and we will talk about it in the wrap up episode. But at any rate, we've got the exiled demons here. And of course, as we would expect, they'd like to get hell back and they also want it to be theirs this time. Or it's hard to say exactly how true that really is. But what we do see here is the demon Azazel. We see that he is using that as a kind of tagline to secure his own power uh, in a speech that really you know, reeks of demagoguery, I, I, would, I would say. But he does actually have a good plan because he's got something that he knows Dream wants. He does. He, he's got Nada. Um, and he wants to use, uh, that as a bargaining chip, uh, if, you know, convincing dream that hell should belong to the demons, um, doesn't work, uh, quite as well. Um, and Azizel is a character we've seen before in Sandman number four. We saw him. He was one of the triumvirate ruling hell along with Lucifer and Beelzebub. Uh, Leslie Clear notes that, uh, Neil Gaiman didn't particularly care for the way he looked in issue four. And so this is kind of the preferred view of Azizel that he looked too much like, quote, a floating potato, unquote, in <laughs> issue four. Um, so instead, we have like the fun combination of teeth and eyes, which we had some of the eyes and teeth in the other one. But I do kind of like this. It's like a, an inverse lightning bolt kind of thing, but then with almost a universe stuck between it. Um, and then he's got a couple other companions specific to him who will be making the journey. But he is talking, as you said, in very kind of populist terms, but with a bit of demagoguery thrown in, which is frequently goes hand in hand with people who give very populist speeches sometimes to a crowd of demons, uh, you know, on a plane here in Limbo. Right. The the text of this speech is Azazel more or less suggesting that what they need is a, you know, a workers co-op in charge of hell. But, you know, also someone 
someone needs to have the final say. Someone needs to be the first among equals. And well, since you've asked, he'll happily do the job. That's really the the subtext of this speech. And it's it's a very good speech. I mean, it's perfect. I love the characterization of Azazel here. And I really also do love the way he looks. I mean, yeah, floating potato, I think is, yeah, that's about right for what he looked like back in A Hope in Hell. Here looks a lot more uh, weird fiction, a lot more like cosmic horror. Uh, here he looks a lot more cosmic horror. He looks uh, Lovecraftian, we might say. And this is, uh, in my recollection, and I could be wrong, but in my recollection of when I feel like I've seen depictions of the Lords of Chaos and other DC comics, they look a little bit more like this, where it's just kind of the smiling, maybe toothy, toothy, toothy smiles. And so I think the fact that you, Neil, um, with Kelly Jones and the other artists have nicely set up that the Lords of Chaos don't look like this in this issue gives the freedom for Azizel to not just look like a Lord of Chaos. That's really interesting. And maybe there's a, a kind of alternative reading here. I mean, just like we were you know, referring to Lord Kilderkin as Lord Half-Barrel and trying to uh, to read something into that. Uh, perhaps, I don't know, Azazel, not just a demagogue, but actually a plant, not even a demon, just masquerading as one. I mean, it might be. Or again, there could be one of those places where, even though in this comic we don't see a lot of overlap, maybe there is the overlap where Azazel and the demons are in some ways chaotic. Um, and that is, you know... As everyone will be tired of me doing at this point, uh, thinking in current views of Dungeons and Dragons kind of <laughs> cosmology, um, we've got the blood war, which is between the demons and the devils, the devils being lawful evil and the demons being chaotic evil. If anyone's curious, uh, if I had to pick, I would go with lawful evil because I saw a wonderful depiction of the alignment chart where Stringer Bell was lawful evil. And uh, I would rather be on Stringer Bell's side than most other people's. <laughs> Because he's got a plan and also sometimes does respect Robert's rules of order. Yeah, Stringer Bell might actually be, uh, I think, my my favorite villain in in all of literature. And uh, I don't know, when we're done with the Sandman, maybe we'll start a, a Wire podcast. <laughs> we can, well, all right. So these are the players who are given a lot of attention here in the issue. But we do also, in this issue, meet two other players. This is during a scene in which the various emissaries are formally welcomed into Dream's Palace in the Dreaming. And the first of these is a contingent from the ancient Egyptian gods. And Brent, you reminded us earlier, reminded me earlier that, hey, we've already met Ra in Facade. But here we get Bast, who is a cat. We also get Bess, who is a household deity. And then Finally, we get Anubis, who is described here as a lord of the dead of the Nile Delta. And then the second contingent is the Japanese Shinto god Susano Wo. He is a figure who started life as a sea god, but who is also associated with storms, as you know, I think it seems kind of natural that in Japanese culture, storms would be associated with the sea. So that's a clear connection there. But his story in both the Kojiki and the Nihonshoki, which are the, the major classical texts with stories about Shinto gods and heroes, and these were both compiled in the 8th century by by the way. But uh, anyway, in both of these texts, Susano Wo's story is that he becomes a ruler of the underworld. And I think that's what he's doing in our present story. And my question about this then, Brent, is you know thinking back uh, about cosmological inquiries we have made about this speculative universe in these last few issues is 
were Anubis and Sasano Wo in hell? By which I mean, are these entities who have also just been kicked out by Lucifer, like, did they rule over little fiefdoms in the like wider domain of hell, which is, you know, how you were sort of suggesting that we should think of hell last time? Do you think that that's where their underworlds are? I actually don't think that's where their underworlds are. My head canon on this, and I don't think we have a definitive answer, is you know, when when we hear when we're introduced to death and we hear about where people go when you die, the idea that like it may be unique to you in some way. So I kind of assume that just as the Silver City is floating off of off here and hell is floating there, and somewhere there's a cave that's under all of it where Loki is, that also there may separately be a pocket place that is, you know, the Egyptian afterworld, um, you know, the Western lands, and that somewhere there is, you know, a Shinto afterlife, and that all of these things, and then they may connect, but that there's not kind of all embracing kind of you know, domain that encompasses all of them, um, but they're rather these are just little pockets. And therefore, the opening of hell being a kind of massive pocket just means that suddenly this real estate is available and desirable for anyone who wants to take, you know, their smaller pocket and expand it. But I don't know. how. how is that how you view it too? Or? Well- Uh, Yes, I think that's the only way that can make sense. But this runs into the problem that we had last issue where Gaiman tells us that hell is also the same place that we think of as Hades or or Tartarus. So so is it only the Greek, ancient Greek religion that that's true for, but not these other religions, right? So that's uh, where I have some confusion and I'm just not sure that Gaiman had it thought out quite in that way. But it is clear or at least it seems to be the case, one, that Anubis and Susana Wo are not here airing some kind of grievance <laughs> the way that the demons are, right? The demons clearly you know, ha- have a grudge. They're mad. They've just been kicked out of their home and they want it back. And in fact, they would like to have it back on their own terms. We don't get that sense here from Anubis and Susana Wo. So it, 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 doesn't seem like it can be that they were also just kicked out of hell. But yeah, I, so I am just confused about then why Gaiman invoked Hades there when it doesn't seem like Hades should really be located in hell or Tartarus as well, for that matter. Yeah, and I think I think you might be right there. I think that he should have said it differently when he was trying to present kind of an all-encompassing view of hell. I think he very much met a Judeo-Christian kind of hell and that, you know, reference to Greek in, you know, a headcanon, I think for you and I, we may need to think of it as just like these are Christian Greeks who then have affiliated Hades and hell being the same. Right. But when it comes to the Greek pantheon and – there will be some mention of Greek pantheon figures in future issues in this season of Mists. Um, we don't get them in this issue, but I will note, and many, you know, DC Comics fan readers will know, you know, the Greek gods, um, and their mythological figures obviously have a big role in part of DC continuity because of Wonder Woman, right? So, you know, Hades and Ares and Zeus, like those are actually characters we've seen many times in DC continuity. And also with, um, with Captain Marvel, uh, aka Shazam, there's kind of a Greek adjacent thing going on, um, in some ways. And so I think that again, for headcanon purposes, you and I probably need to associate that by using the Greek words, you know, Hades and stuff, we don't mean that hell is 
the Greek mythological, you know, in a Hellenistic kind of way, but instead it's the Corinthians of the Bible kind of Greek hell Hades. Well, that's brilliant, Brandon. That has to be that has to be right. And yeah, the, Paul in in uh, his letters uses the word Tartarus because yeah, he's just writing in Greek, and that's a word that you use for underworld in Greek or one that you can use. And so yeah, I think we can headcanon it that way. That that's that's how Gaiman is using that, and that there's a kind of a, a Tartarus A and a Tartarus B. Uh, Tartarus B uh, being the way that it's used in uh, in 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 Christian scripture, the New Testament written in. Greek and uh, that's what he meant here. I think that makes that makes a ton of sense. Though you also now, Brent, have have really made me feel like there's a missed opportunity uh, in season of mist for Wonder Woman to have uh, have shown up in the, the dreaming as an emissary, and uh, that's now in my head canon too. Well, and I think even if not her, then certainly any number of other you know Artemis or anyone else could have easily been swapped in here if Wonder Woman was busy doing something else off planet at the time um, in continuity, and so Neil couldn't borrow her. Then somebody could have been put in, um, which is too bad. Well, let me ask you this then, Brent, because it, it seems like clearly the reason that they are not here is because they are actual figures in DC Comics, and Neil didn't want to deal with that. But but am I am I right then in thinking that Anubis and Bast and Susano Woe are not previously existing DC characters? Not that I am aware of. I'm assuming at some point in the long run of DC continuity that we have had Anubis somewhere, um, just because it's such a fun thing to draw same with bast that like you know i i want to have a cat-headed creature in the background uh but i don't think they ever necessarily are major players certainly not when it comes to you know metaphysical real estate um i will note that leslie clinger in his annotation um for the panel with the three egyptian gods uh briefly discussed their roles in egyptian um, mythology, but he specifically goes out of his way to also mention that they are not the chief deities that one traditionally associates with, you know, being the real power brokers, you know, top of the pyramid in Egyptian mythology. Um, he doesn't call back to Ra, but I think that there we have an example of one who, you know, certainly is. So I think we've got, you know, a lot of gods and figures who are kind of more on the margins and maybe more forgotten. Um, and so in some ways, maybe they're representing larger constituencies, but in some ways it may be that they themselves are just have fallen into harder times, which is something that I think Neil plays with a lot more in terms of American gods um, and the idea of, you know, gods trying to sustain themselves with just tiny slivers of people still worshiping them being kind of the power source. Right. Because we would expect Osiris to be here, I think, rather than Anubis. Yeah. Though, to be fair, Anubis, a lot cooler to draw than Osiris, I think. So just for the visual, I would I would go with that. But I agree with your assessment that for the most part, these also are minor deities, even in their own pantheons, and that that has to mean something. So we'll we'll see how this all plays out in issues to come and maybe try to take stock of that in the wrap-up episode as well. Hi Bender asked Neil Gaiman and his Sandman companion um, whether using all these, you know, existing kind of theologies, mythologies are, you know, they are or at least were someone's theology at some point, right? And it, there's a dangerous road that you can walk there, walk there in terms of, you know, maybe going too far. And um, 
So Highbender asked Neil Gaiman, did he get any angry letters? Um, and Neil said he got some, although the ones he remembers m- getting the most of were people who were fans of the Marvel Comics continuity of the way that the Norse gods are depicted, who thought that he intentionally was making fun of them, um, particularly Thor, um, a little bit more in issues that will follow, but we see a little bit in this issue even in his depiction. Uh, however, he also recalls getting letters from Scandinavian readers who were very excited that there was a more realistic depiction of the way that they viewed the older text to actually describe what those characters were and not the kind of, you know, Kirby version that we get in Marvel continuity of lots of, you know, pastel colors and capes um, and stuff. So. Yeah, there's a there's a reason that uh, I didn't have us pause and talk about those figures at all, really, at the top, <laughs> right? Because everybody knows who these figures are now. Uh, I, I really hope when we get to this part of the TV adaptation of Sandman, though, that we can get Anthony Hopkins, Chris Hemsworth, and Tom Hiddleston to reprise these roles here. <laughs> I mean, it might be a little jarring for everybody, but uh, I like seeing those people on screen, so that would be fun. <laughs> Yeah, I think it would it'd be fun, in the, but also to do a little bit of extra kind of CGI stuff to make Chris Hemsworth even more – have more massive arms than he does. Yes. Yeah. I mean, just more barrel-chested. Not not half barrel-chested, but full, full barrel-chested for sure. Yeah. Well, we've got two extraneous bits still, Brent, that we've not actually talked about yet because we have taken this issue largely out of sequence, something that probably I ought to have told listeners, I don't know, like an hour ago, but we took a lot of this out of sequence. But there's some some other bits that we still need to deal with. And the, the first is that we meet Eve, as in the person who ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis. And she lives in a cave in the dreaming. She's friends with Matthew. And Brent, I think that you have mentioned this before because we've had Eve mentioned before, but a long time ago. But Eve is, she is someone who exists already in DC Comics, right? Yeah, I think she might have been um, uh, another person who has hosted kind of the anthology comics uh, in the past. Um, obviously, we have Cain and Abel, um, so she might have appeared in that stuff. I haven't seen a lot with Eve, but uh, but yeah, this is – I mean, this is Eve, um, and this is who she is. She also, in the way that she's depicted here, and I think in the way she's been depicted elsewhere, is kind of her own three-in-one, which we do get here, where she looks older and then looks younger as the panels progress. Yeah, that was a really interesting visual. I wasn't quite sure what to make of that and and wanted to reserve some judgment until we see more of it. I I was interested that she's here in the dreaming uh, rather than in in hell where she's often uh, depicted. But it also occurred to me that she's someone who has had a really, really important interaction with Lucifer, uh, which then also was true, of course, of Dream. And we've also seen Cain go interact with Lucifer as well. And so the Dreaming is really actually packed full of people who have had face-to-face interactions with Lucifer. And that, that's interesting. Well, and I think as one of the protagonists of like the first story in some ways, it makes sense for her in the conception of the Dreaming not being simply somewhere you go where you sleep, but also – the idea of a place where stories incarnate kind of live, it makes sense to have her want to reside in or near there. And also maybe there's just even some maternal things where she wants to be near her children. Um, I don't know if we ever get an explanation that's that clear on that, but uh, that might be part of what is going on. 
Well, and I think she's standing in here as something of a maternal figure for Matthew as well, which, uh, again, if memory serves, I think is something that we'll see more as the Sandman continues. We also have another bit that we need to deal with, too, though, which is that we get a fairly epic depiction of the entrance to Dream's palace, and we see that it is guarded by a wyvern a griffin and a hippogriff. And we've actually seen them before. We saw them back in A Dream of a Thousand Cats, but that was in The Dream of a uh, of a Cat. This is the first time that we've seen this more objectively, right? That we've seen this as as being something that exists in the dreaming independent of the, the dreamers. And uh, that's a big deal because we're going to see this again and again and again. And we have a lot of shots of the castle leading up to that too, because we see where he's transported it Matthew says to a mountainside, but it seems to be a perilous bunch of kind of cliffs where things are about to fall off, which reminds me of many wonderful kind of fantasy art I've seen of castles that it just like logically there's no way that would have been built there. <laughs> right. And you wouldn't actually want to be in that building because it seems terrible. But if you know that magically it'll hold, it is the best place to have a castle. And I wonder when we cut to the shot where we see the outer gate. Is this something where once he's decided I'm going to have the visitors, okay, let me have the visitors and so make it this expansive kind of courtyard in front of it. Uh, and then we see, you know, columns in the back and we see, you know, some wonderful um, kind of engravings in the front and it, it feels like it's a hodgepodge of kind of some Western and Middle Eastern kind of mythological sources that are at play even in how it's looking. Um which is just – it's great to show the sweep of it. And part of the uh, the other thing that's going on here, um, which Neil has mentioned in interviews with Leslie Klinger and Highbender both, is even though we're introduced to the cast of, you know, a dozen or so, you know, folks who are coming to per, um, to ask for or demand, depending on um, hell, we see a larger crowd shot than that. And the idea being that there are other – mythological pantheons perhaps that are represented in that and we just aren't given the space to, to have them introduced in this particular issue. Yeah, it's like three or four times as many people as we've actually had introduced. And this is going to be the story. So it is possible that in later issues, we will see that there are more contingents. And then we can talk about why why Gaiman led with these and not not some of the others if that turns out to be the case. And yeah, that's more or less the entire issue, though. The the issue ends with uh, you know a big page, several panels of you know, re- really focused on Dream welcoming all these emissaries and telling them that he is going to throw a banquet for them tonight, and then tomorrow they can begin negotiations. And that's where we cut to Dream. And, you know, we've seen Dream. Kelly Jones does a lot intentionally with how Dream is depicted, Um partially to give you a sense of how he's feeling internally. So we see him come back with a lot of different kind of billows and ruffles in kind of an uncertain way as he steps back into the throne room earlier. Then we see a lot of the issue. It's just him in either a tank top or a t-shirt kind of uh, talking to himself or other people, but being irritated, you know, breaking a mirror and then rebuilding it. And maybe he breaks it again off screen and rebuilds it again. Who knows how long that goes on. But when he finally has resigned himself here at the end of the issue that he is welcoming all of these people um, to the hospitality of his castle um, and that he'll, you know, they'll have a feast and then he'll hear whatever they have to say. 
we see him kind of in full regalia. And we don't see him in the regalia of wearing his helm of office, which we've seen him put on when he's striding off to battle. Instead, we have the kind of this ornate robe. He's got some kind of a fun, like, half staff, you know, walking stick kind of thing with like a crystal at the end of it. Yeah, scepter. Scepter is the word we're looking for there. Scepter is the word we're looking for. He's got a great scepter. He's holding up the key um, just because he knows what that's what everyone's here for. So let me make it clear this is what it looks like. Um, and it's very much kind of a more regal, you know, he's on a slightly raised platform or, you know, dais or something. And uh, it's kind of a fun bit of art there, particularly from the journey we've seen dream on in the art we've seen prior to this point in the issue. And this panel is awesome. There are two really, really cool things going on here. The first is that I, I would describe what Dream is wearing here actually as a kind of priestly vestment. And it's got all sorts of uh, of, of symbols on it, actually, including something that, that looks like a, a, a griffin. There are these uh, like uh, teardrop or just water drop, I guess, shapes that ha- then have fire in them. And there's some other abstract symbols here and it feels like they must have some meaning right this is the iconography of dreams palace i I don't know what any of it means but like this seems like the sort of thing that uh perhaps not in the real world but at least you know somewhere in lucian's library there must be a handful of phd dissertations about the iconography (laughs) on this outfit and it's interesting i've seen a lot of really great tattoos of things from sandman um on the internet photos of it um i've never seen anyone try to do and i'm i would never get sleeve tattoos myself but if i was to get sleeve tattoos i'd be almost tempted to be like let me make part of each arm be parts of the left and right hand side of his uh his vestments there what i what i hear you saying brant is that you would like listeners to write in to encourage you to get a tattoo sleeve um No, but I would like (laughs) listeners to write in and tell me uh, what I should get a tattoo of if it were to not be a sleeve. Um, I I don't think I'd want to do the uh, key to hell, um, but I mean, maybe dreams hell Um, or maybe something else. Maybe uh, maybe I should just have a book from Lucian's library. Yeah. What does the Patreon goal need to be for you to get a face tattoo of uh, of dreams hell? That's that's the real question. But actually, uh, on a very serious note, listeners, we would love to hear suggestions for what is a good uh, Sandman tattoo. There's actually been conversations on the forums before about nerdy tattoos, because as listeners know, I've got Star Trek and Buffy and Lord of the Rings all all over me. And uh, maybe I need something from the Sandman, too. But there is one more thing in this panel I want to address. Brent, before we talk about the the cover and the title, and then also pick some favorite panels. And this is just going back to what you were saying about that wide shot of the palace where, hey, it looks like there's a ton of people because we actually see people behind Dream here in his palace who we have not met. One of them is some kind of lion person. Uh, But another (laughs) one, I'm just going to say that's Merlin, or at least, you know, wearing a wizard hat. I guess it could be Gandalf. It could be Gandalf. I think it's Merlin. (laughs) Yeah, pretty sure it's Merlin. I think that's Merlin. Because Merlin exists in DC Comics, right? Yeah, he does. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I have to apologize. I don't know who is next to Merlin. Um, and I think we see them in a later issue as well. So maybe uh, Leslie Klinger will assist me with that. Uh, but the person who looks kind of like Mysterio, but this is DC Comics, so that's not right. Uh, but looks seems to have like a jar on his head and has a, a, a cape uh, with a checkered 
kind of tabard of some kind. I don't know who that is, but I think I'm supposed to from some kind of DC continuity as well. Well, all right. Well, we'll look forward to seeing this person perhaps in like full color with a little more detail and perhaps that will jog your your memory or yeah, Klinger or Bender will have something to say about, about who that is. But yeah, that's this issue. So let's move into talking about the the cover here. And this cover shows a snake coiled around Loki's jaws wide open. It's a pretty disturbing image actually, but it is also interesting in that it suggests that Loki is who we should be paying attention to here in this issue, which I'm not sure I would have thought to do otherwise. Yeah, um, it's interesting to focus on Loki. And I don't know how much of it is just the fun of the fact that with Loki, you get to also do a snake. Um, but if that's the case, why not, you know, Anubis and Bast and and Bash? It's just like there's a lot of other fun things where you can have multiple characters. Um, I think here we're supposed to kind of we're still trying to rise the tension of dream has a key and maybe it'll destroy him. Um, and so we want someone who is in peril um, and Loki is in peril in the position he's in, but maybe as we read the comic, we're also supposed to come away with the idea that it is very dangerous as Odin says for Loki, not to be bound by his son's entrails with venom dripping in his eye um, and that there might be very bad outcomes from the fact that Loki, at least temporarily, is out and about. Right. So, yeah, exactly. That's what I mean when I say that this is suggesting that we should be paying attention to Loki. Like, you know, this is a little bit of a clue here that perhaps Gaiman is playing a long game with uh, with Loki, who is someone, frankly, by the end of this issue, I have forgotten about because he's, he's not really here. <laughs> and there's so many other figures to pay attention to. Something that we did a lot of, too, Brent, back in Preludes and Nocturnes was talk about Dream as a Christ figure, because there is a ton of it in Preludes and Nocturnes, but we've not really had much of that since then. But Wow, right here on this cover, Loki is looking very Christ-like. This is essentially a, an image of Christ on the crucifix, except that it is Loki being bound in a stake. But still, he has his arms spread out. We're seeing the rib cage. I mean, this is a, a, a Passion of the Christ illustration, but just with a snake instead of the, the cross being there. And it's it's very interesting. Hmm. I hadn't thought of that before, but you're right. Yeah, it is interesting to see him that way. And it, 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 <laughs> seeing Loki in this way, both on the cover as well as in the comic, you very much feel bad for and want to sympathize with Loki, which is not a position you want to be in if you're familiar with Loki. You mainly feel bad for his wife, I think maybe even more though in this comic, but, uh, it's something else. And I can't tell if the surrounding kind of cement look to the panel that we essentially get on the cover is supposed to be the depiction of like, this is the cave, right? Um, or something else, probably just that, that this is like, you know, that is the stone of the world set above and around it. No, I think that's right. It gives us this sense that we're we're sort of peering into the earth to see what is what is there in the the middle, or one of the many things. Because as we said, there's a lot there, and Earth must be bigger on the inside. Well, let's talk about the little synopsis that we get in lieu of a title, since otherwise this is simply entitled Chapter Three, in which Lucifer's parting gift attracts unwanted attention, and the Dream Lord receives unwelcome visitors. 
Um, and it, to this point where we've had these little, you know, synopses, uh, as Neil Gaiman mentioned, High Bender's uh, Sandman Companion, he thinks of them as kind of Victorian style synopses. Um, I feel like we've had uh, multiple things going on. So we've had bits, two or three, you know, subcomponents of the subtitle that refer to different things going on, an A story and a B story, if you will. This seems to be all the same though, right? We have the attracting unwanted attention and also the unwelcome visitors. And those are essentially the exact same thing going on here in this issue. Right. Uh, there's a semicolon between uh, the, you know, the, the first clause and the second clause here that I don't think is actually necessary because they are in fact referring <laughs> to more or less the same thing. Though I, what I, I, though still, I really like this synopsis because this also feels like it's basically a synopsis for like lethal weapon where it's like dream was five days from <laughs> retirement, but now he's got a massive case that he's got to deal with and doesn't want this headache and, uh, you know, got to file all the paperwork. This is really, this is really an issue that's about how dream doesn't want to deal with paperwork. Well, I mean, who does want to deal with paperwork? And, <laughs> although maybe it is notable, Glenn, because now that I say that out loud, I think Dream does like paperwork, but he only wants to deal with his own paperwork. Now he's been given Lucifer's paperwork. Lucifer retired early, and even though Dream only has, you know, one more case he has to solve, unfortunately, he now has two more cases. Thanks, Lucifer. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that if I think that what's wrong here for Dream is that it's unwanted and unexpected, right? That if it had been on his terms, if it had been his idea, uh, then he would be he would be all for this because he he knows exactly what filing system to to use and you know where to send the duplicate and triplicate copies, and fill out these uh, these forms for taking possession of the the deed to hell. Well, I think that's about all we can muster for this synopsis. So, Brent, what was your favorite panel this issue? Uh, so my favorite panel, and we talked about it a little bit before, was um, when we finally get – and we hear her mentioned earlier – but when we finally get depicted in panel form, Shivering Jemmy, um, I just uh, delighted when we were – you know, brought this panel the first time I read, and every time I read it, I really enjoy it. Um, I like it more with the foreshadowing, um, particularly even now that I know it's coming. I like it more when we get the Lords of Chaos who are talking about shivering Jemmy and the Shallow Brigade, and I imagine all kinds of terrible things that it might be. And then, you know, first we get Kilderkin, um, and then we cut immediately to the side of Kilderkin, and we get. I is shivering Jemmy of the Shallow Brigade, and I is a Princess of Chaos, and. I is very important and we once held to that's what, um, which is just great. I love her little, uh, kind of hat with the little, like, you know, puff ball on the back of it. Uh, the clown face makeup is great. Uh, I like that in the color, um, the balloon and her nose match really nicely. It's just, it, I'm, I'm a big fan of this panel. Yeah, I really love the pairing here. You know, I talked a few episodes ago about how Elizabeth and I had dressed up as Destiny and Delirium the last time we did Halloween. But I actually think here that the Lord Kilderkin with his genie and then Princess Jemmy here uh, could could actually be also a great couple's Halloween costume. And so what was your favorite panel or do we have a twofer? 
Uh, we do not have a twofer, and I think that no one will be surprised to hear that my favorite panel was the very wide shot that we get of the entrance to Dream's Palace, where we get the wyvern, the hippogriff, and the, the griffin. I love seeing these characters formally introduced because they go on to become iconic, right? The the gatekeepers here. I mean, these, the, these are just iconic in the Sandman. It's really cool to see them. But what I love the most about this shot, actually, is that, uh, and, and you alluded to this when you were talking about this this panel, Brent, is that we also get something that looks very uh, ancient Near Eastern and uh, specifically uh, Assyrian. Uh, we get the the door, the massive, massive door being guarded on either side by bas-relief sculptures of uh, Lamassu, which are these uh, these famous uh, winged lions with the head of a, of a human, a, a bearded human, that are just really terrifying to actually actually encounter in a museum. And every time I see them in a museum, uh, there are some of these in the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago. So I know I certainly saw these when I was a, in person when I was a kid and a, an adolescent, and I, I think you must have as well, Brent. Uh, but they're terrifying to behold in a museum. Like They're really impressive. And it always makes me wonder what it was like to be on these archaeological excavations in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, uncovering these things in the ground and going through that process and how terrifying that must be. Maybe, you know, I'm just influenced by by too much weird fiction there. Uh, you know, archaeological horror, digging up things in the past that ought to be left buried. But uh, I think it's a really great touch here to to put that at the in the you know, to put to put these Lamasu here at Dream's Palace. It's really great and it's really powerful. And it also helps I think and perhaps because we've seen those. Um to give us a good sense of scale and scope. Um, and it's just, it's fun and evocative and it lets you essentially also kind of push a fourth creature into the mix there. Right. Cause you already, we've got a lot going on with the three guardians that we have. Um, and they're certainly a lot of fun that it looks like, you know, Kelly Jones must've had in laying out this panel. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really a great one. Um, I like it a lot. I also like that, you know, the Griffin in welcoming everyone, you know, kind of does it in a very kind of apologetic way, but a very formal way, which is just kind of a fun way to see these creatures kind of behaving. There is a conversation earlier that Dream has with uh, the Griffin talking to him through a statue um, where there's outside visitors and the Griffin says, you know, they're so powerful. If they try to force their way in, we're not going to be able to stop them unless you loan us some of your power. And I think there is maybe a callback to the fact that Dream can bestow some of his Dream energy power into, I guess we've seen it in items, and this is the idea that you could actually instill it into creatures, though. And the idea that he could give some of his power, but maybe he'd be cutting from his own essence in doing so, to empower the three guardians more so than they already are. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the rule here is things he's created, you know, whether they're... Uh, sentient or just material objects, right? But that he can put his own power or, you know, imbue his own creations with more of his own power. And it's certainly telling, right, that he does not do that. And this seems to be actually the thing that tips dream over into, yeah, let's just let them in and I'll deal with this. Though I think he would have come around to that attitude eventually anyway, but he learned his lesson from the Ruby, right? So this is another subtle way in which we are being shown that 
Dream has been learning. Dream has been changing from his experience being imprisoned in the you know dungeon basement of Roderick Burgess and then having to reconstitute his realm. Well, that and also I think Dream is most comfortable. We've seen him when there are discrete rules of polite, you know, society at play. And so he has gone to others people, uh, gone to other realms and asked for to be treated as royalty. He essentially has royalty of various levels visiting him here. If he grants them hospitality, then there are certain rules at play that he understands and can proceed with. Um, and he does a nice delaying action by saying, you know, we're going to feast and then we'll talk later. So, you know, he's able to buy himself some time. But, yeah, he is forced – his hand is forced as to how quickly he has to proceed to inviting others into his house. The good news is he can make his house infinitely big and put them many rooms away from himself. Right. And so when we continue then with this uh, this storyline here, where we've got all of these emissaries in Dream's really cool palace house, we're going to get a, a lot of court intrigue, right? We're going to see who's staying where, who's sitting where around the dinner table, the banquet table, and so on. That's going to be a, a lot of fun. But that's actually going to be Two issues from now when we take that up, because we're, we're going to tug on the thread that Death dangled earlier about, hey, wh- where, where'd all the dead people go now that hell has <laughs> been uh, evacuated? And so, yeah, that's where we'll be next issue. And for now, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other podcasts at claytemplemedia.com. If you would like to support the show, the entire podcast network, and get access to close to 100 bonus episodes, we would love for you to check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. And we'll be back next month with Season of Mists Chapter 4. And until then, pleasant dreams. <laughs>